The History Robcast. Hello all and welcome back to Mr. All's History Podcast, here to hopefully guide you through the murky waters of conflict and tension again this time. Last time around, we looked at the Treaty of Versailles and the importance of that in terms of starting our course. Today we're going to move on to one of the key um, things that came out of that treaty, which was the League of Nations. An absolutely crucial subject uh, that you really, really, really need to know about. Now, we're going to begin today by looking at what the League of Nations was, what its aims were and how it was set up. And then we're going to go on to look at the challenges it faced in the first 10 years of its existence. So during the 1920s. Next time round, we'll move on to the two big hitters of the Manchurian crisis and the Abyssinian crisis, uh, which ended the League. But for now, we're going to focus on its very noble ambitions when it began. So, uh, the League of Nations obviously came out of the Treaty of Versailles. It was one of Woodrow Wilson's wishes to have it created. Uh, and that was one of his few 14 points that was eventually included in the treaty. And its general aim, uh, as you should know, was to try and get countries to cooperate and to talk together through diplomacy in order to resolve conflict and argument, rather than resorting to war, as had happened in 1914. Um, Who joined the League of Nations when it was set up? Well, uh, it had 42 members to begin with, the most notable being Britain and France. Um, and to some extent Italy as well. Um, But more notable perhaps were its absences. The USA uh, did not join the League of Nations because it returned to its policy of isolationism. Um, Its people, as we mentioned last time round, were quite worried by the fact that they'd lost 100,000 men during World War I and didn't want to be involved in fighting other people's wars again. So when it came round to the vote, Congress voted against joining the League of Nations. Uh, So Woodrow Wilson's campaigning, uh, and he did campaign, he went around America uh, on a train trying to get people to support this idea, uh, but ultimately he failed. And that, of course, uh, got the League off to a very, very bad start. Uh, That's one very major, powerful country outside of the League of Nations and, of course, the country who came up with the idea in the first place. Uh, So I guess a bit of um, propaganda loss for the League of Nations there, that even the country who had thought it didn't join it to begin with. Uh, Other countries perhaps would have liked to have joined it, uh, but were not invited. So Russia, for example, due to the fears of communism following the 1917 revolution in Russia, um, they were seen as dangerous. They were worried, or they worried Western Europe, particularly France and Britain, who wanted to cut off diplomatic ties with Russia 
Um, they'd even sent troops to fight against Lenin and his communists, so they were on very, very bad terms in 1919-1920. So Russia were not invited to join the League uh, at its inception and its start. The other countries who were not invited uh, were, of course, those countries who had lost World War One. Uh, so Germany, obviously, was not invited to join uh, neither Austria or Hungary originally, though both of them did join during the early 1920s uh, as they established themselves following the war. Now, the problem that all three of those countries not being part of the League uh, caused was that many of the punishments that the League could, uh, put, could put in place um, or impose upon its members um, could be got around uh, by dealing with those other three countries. Um, it also meant that if any of those three countries did anything, um, really the League had no power to stop them. Uh, and of course, it stopped it being a global organisation. Um, if it had those two major countries, particularly the USA and Russia, you could easily have said that it did cover the majority of the countries in the world and certainly all the powerful ones. Uh, having perhaps the two most powerful countries following World War I out of uh, that equation meant that the League was considerably weaker. That said, uh, one of the benefits that, that was there was the fact that obviously all the colonies of the League's members did join, so there was quite good coverage uh, around the world thanks to the large empires of Britain and France, particularly uh, in Africa. So it did span um, a large amount of the world, but um, it was very Eurocentric in its most powerful countries, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So, what did the League of Nations um, want to do? Well, to be honest, it's quite complicated. There was a lot of things that the League of Nations wanted to do. Um, and this was all spelled out in its covenant, um, or a list of agreements that the countries had to sign when they, began, uh, when they became sorry, members of the League of Nations. We're gonna go over some of the key um, points of that covenant that you will need to know for your examination. So the first one um, was the idea that there would be no more secret alliances between members. Um, so if you wanted to ally with someone, if you wanted um, to make an agreement with someone, it had to be out in the open, it had to be on the table. Uh, and therefore there could be no confusion if countries um, decided that they had disagreements with one another. What the League believed um, was that secret agreements had been one of the reasons that World War I had broken out um, because everyone was a little unsure what France and Russia's agreements were with each other, what Russia and Britain's agreements were, uh, Russia and Serbia, Austria, Hungary and Germany. Um, and that confusion as to what those agreements meant um, caused war to break out as nobody really anticipated all of those countries going to war to support each other. So the League of Nations wanted that out on the table, nicely spelled out, so everyone knew what the consequences were of any actions they took. Um, another key point that the League made in their covenant uh, was the idea of collective security. So this would be the idea that by uniting together, by presenting um, as a combined force, the members of the League could stop anyone taking aggressive action or punishment, or punish them, sorry, if they did. 
So they would have to provide um, men from their armies to, to create a United Nations force, uh, sorry, a League of Nations force. Uh, that's a bad slip to make. Um, and that would take action against anyone who broke the League's rules. Alongside that, and perhaps in slight contradiction to that, uh, the League also wanted to reduce uh, arms. So they wanted uh, disarmament um, in some some form or some degree. Um, as had happened with Germany, of course, under the Treaty of Versailles, uh, they wished for other countries to have their armaments limited as well. However, um, all three of these aims were in their own way unrealistic um, due to the fact that not all the members of the League of Nations agreed with them in the first place, um, and they certainly weren't able to support all of those ideas at the same time. Uh, partly due to the fact that they were tired after World War I, so they didn't want to engage in collective security and fight uh, against people to defend others. Uh, they didn't want to reduce their arms because they'd just been uh, attacked by Germany, so they worried somebody else might do that. Um, and the secret alliance is perhaps the most successful um, of the three. Things were generally done on the table and that did make sense. Uh, so that was one of the big obstacles that got in the way of the covenant um, was the fact that countries were tired after the war and also economically they were damaged. They spent an awful lot of money uh, fighting the war and France and Britain in particular um, were in huge amounts of debt. So uh, their ability to take action uh, was very much reduced. Uh, the other thing that got in their way was the lack of an army. Uh, the League of Nations didn't have its own army um, and as we've said, other countries were, were war-weary, um, didn't want to fight anymore, and so were reluctant to give their forces. That meant that when um, somebody proposed taking armed action uh, against somebody who broke the rules, uh, countries were, generally speaking, very reluctant to commit their forces, especially if it meant them travelling a long way around the world, as we'll see later with the Manchurian crisis. So moving on um, to how the League itself was structured, because there were several different key parts of the League of Nations that you need to know. Um, the first part, or the, the top part of the League, was the uh, Council. And the Council was made up of four permanent members, Italy, France, Britain and Japan. Uh, so linking back to that earlier point of it being very Eurocentric, um, excluding Japan there, who many would say uh, saw themselves as a, as a slightly European power anyway. Um, they certainly saw themselves as more similar to those countries than they did to other countries in Asia. So their, their bases were in Europe and they had a very European mindset, the Council, on things. Um, and those four members were permanent, but they were joined by four non-permanent members who rotated every three years. So you had um, lots of different countries represented on the League Council across its existence um, and lots that you perhaps wouldn't expect to see on there thanks to the fact that they were rotated. Now the Council met four times a year uh, to try and settle international disputes, um, so fairly regularly, every three months or so, um, but decisions um, didn't always get made easily thanks to the fact that uh, France and Britain particularly um, took a lot of persuading to take action for the League um, and Italy, as we'll see later, and Japan also caused problems um, in terms of 
the league going against their wishes for the future. Uh, now, the council made the kind of key decisions um, in terms of international disputes, but also very important was the assembly, uh, which was made up of all the members of the League of Nations. And this met once a year um, to make decisions, um, which was a big problem because they only met once a year, therefore it took a while, if something happened, for the League to get round to discussing it in the assembly. Uh, the second problem was that all decisions made in the assembly had to be unanimous. Uh, that means voted for by everyone. So it took a while for them to meet, it took a while for them to make a decision, and usually it wasn't unanimous, so things didn't get passed, uh, which made the League very, very ineffective uh, because it was very unlikely that they would actually take action and that everyone would agree to do that. Um, and even if they did, usually it had gone on so long that the problem had stopped or got so worse um, that they could no longer do anything about it anyway. Uh, the other parts of the League of Nations you should probably know about, um, the Permanent Court of Justice, which is made up of 15 judges uh, from the different countries of the League of Nations, uh, and that focused on problems with international law, so if people broke treaties um, and that kind of thing. But again, um, it didn't really have any way to enforce uh, its decisions, if it thought that somebody was guilty. Um, it didn't use the League of Nations Army to do that, and it didn't have any kind of force of its, so, its own. Um, so usually when the Permanent Court of Justice made a decision, if the country didn't agree with that, they just ignored it, which made it quite an ineffective um, organ. So, a final point on this section, what did the League of Nations do uh, if somebody did break um, a rule or a treaty or do something that the Assembly found uh, wrong. Well, the Council uh, would be in charge of putting the decisions in place uh, and it did this in three stages um, to make sure that the response was fair. The first stage would be moral condemnation, um, which meant that it would basically say that what the country had done was wrong. Uh, it would tell them very publicly uh, that they shouldn't have done that and it would put pressure um, on that country to reverse what they were doing, stop what they were doing, and accept the League's position. Uh, now, of course, that, generally speaking, didn't work because the country would know they were doing something wrong in the first place. Um, so it wasn't very often that that actually solved the problem. Um, a second stage would be economic sanctions, um, where the countries of the League of Nations would stop trading with the aggressor country, the country that was seen to be doing something wrong. Um, that obviously would have more of an effect because it would hurt their economy um, and it would potentially uh, stop them being able to function as a country uh, without the money coming in from all those nations. So that could be effective uh, and was a very powerful tool if used correctly, uh, though it often wasn't, as we'll see with Abyssinia. And the third and final stage was military force, where all the countries were expected to combine to an armed force that would act against the aggressor. Um, and as we'll see in our studies, didn't really happen uh, for a variety of reasons, many of which we've mentioned already. Okay, I'm going to try and take a brief interlude now, uh, so you, you can either listen to uh, the music that I'm going to put in here to try and spice things up a bit, or you can take a break, uh, and then when we come back we will discuss what happened to the league during the 1920s.
welcome back. So, we're now going to look at what the League of Nations faced and dealt with during the 1920s. Uh, I'm going to split this into two sections to help you uh, in terms of structure if you were to have this question in your exam, um, because you will be asked uh, about successes and about failures, um, or, or potentially about one over the other. So we're going to look at successes first and go through all the things that the League of Nations had successes with. Um, there may be more, but these are the key ones that you should try and learn. So first of all, um, the first problem that the League of Nations encountered was that of prisoners of war. Um, after World War I, there was over or around 500,000 prisoners of war um, in other countries under the control um, of their former enemies. The League of Nations um, successfully got all of these prisoners of war, 500,000, back from the 26 different countries they were in um, to their original countries, so they repatriated them. Um, and amazingly, they did this, or managed to do this, at a cost of just one pound each. Um, so quite an incredible job, really, getting 500,000 people back um, from all across the world uh, for the average price of a pound each. That's pretty incredible uh, and was a very good start for the League of Nations. Um, now, the other successes that the League of Nations had during the 1920s, uh, probably the most obvious one, is the Arland Islands, which were a group of islands between Finland and Sweden. Now, they had um, been under the control of Finland, but Finland was part of Russia until the end of World War I. So when Finland declared independence, uh, it declared that the Arland Islands were theirs and part of this new Finland as well. Um, Sweden disagreed because the people on the Ireland Islands spoke Swedish and they thought they had, should have the right to vote uh, for whether to become part of Sweden or Denmark, which sounds fair enough to me. Um, this caused a problem. Finland didn't agree uh, and the two sides looked as though they might go to war uh, against each other over the Ireland Islands um, because not only uh, were there Swedish people Swedish-speaking people, that's a bit of a tongue twister, living there. Um, but they're also very strategically placed. If a war was to break out, um, the one country would be able to attack the other from the Ireland Islands and have a real advantage. So there was more than just people at stake here. Uh, there was defence as well. So the League of Nations uh, sent a task force to the Ireland Islands to discover uh, what the problem was, to try and find a solution. Um, and eventually they did come up with a solution, which was that Finland could keep the islands, uh, but they had to demilitarise them, so they weren't ever allowed to build forts um, or keep any members of their armed forces there. Um, and the Swedish-speaking people who lived there were allowed some autonomy, um, so some right to rule their own affairs and do what they wanted. And this was a really, really big first success for League of Nations. Finland and Sweden could well have gone to war over this, um, but the League of Nations had succeeded in its, its main aim, which was to avoid war. Um, so that was a very, very good start for the League of Nations. Its next big success uh, came in the early 1920s uh, in relation to Austria and Hungary, which are now separate countries. Um, but in their separation and setting them up as different countries, uh, both had experienced some real, real economic problems. Um, and both were struggling with bankruptcy in the early 1920s. So the League of Nations provided them with loans um, and also sent advisers to take over 
their national banks uh, and try and reorganize them so that they functioned much more efficiently. Um, now this was very, very successful. Both countries uh, managed to break free of their debt and become stable uh, and functioned on their own. And by 1926, the League of Nations had stopped having to give assistance to either country. Um, so that was a success. Um, I would say its next success really was integrating Germany into the League of Nations in 1926, um, which came as a result of getting Gustav Stresemann, who you should remember from your Germany unit, uh, to sign the Locarno Pact in 1925, in which Germany, for the first time, um, willingly and happily signed uh, an agreement on the Western borders which had been agreed at Versailles. So it agreed that it had lost Alsace-Lorraine to France, it agreed um, that it had lost Eupen and Malmedy to Belgium, etc. And because Stressman signed that, um, and he, he indicated that he was willing to persuade, uh, or sorry, pursue a peaceful policy uh, towards Europe, that allowed the League of Nations to let Germany join. Uh, and they went on to become a member of the council, um, and that meant another powerful party within the League of Nations. So that was good, uh, and it showed that for the 1920s at least, uh, Germany bought into the idea of European peace. Um, and it certainly wasn't until the 1930s that we could argue against that. Um, other successful things that the League of Nations did, um, the health uh, part of the health organisation of the League of Nations was very successful. Um, it was set up in, uh, well, following the war, um, but it really got going after 1922 and the Warsaw Health Conference, um, in which plans were put in place to help stop epidemics spreading um, across some of the more impoverished places in the world, such as Africa uh, and the Far East. They also set up um, several institutions across the world, for example, Singapore, Copenhagen and London, um, which studied how to make vaccines for some of the more deadly diseases. Uh, and they successfully distributed vaccines for diphtheria, tetanus and tuberculosis um, across the world. So it had a lot of success with helping, um, especially the poorer countries, fight against disease. They also had some success um, in terms of drugs and limiting the trafficking of drugs worldwide um, and the opium conferences of 1924 and 1925 uh, put in place rules that actually still stand today in terms of international drug trafficking. Um, so it, it laid the basis for um, greater monitoring, greater prevention uh, of that. Uh, finally, and perhaps one of the most important uh, successes it had was um, it created the Slavery Commission, um, which led to the freeing of 200,000 slaves worldwide. Uh, and we perhaps don't always remember that slavery was ongoing um, despite the ban in Britain and its empire and other places. And slavery still existed across the world um, in many shapes and forms. So the freeing of 200,000 slaves by the League of Nations uh, was a big success uh, and helped stop um, certain hotspots for slavery in the world. Now those were the major successes of the League of Nations. Um, unfortunately during the 1920s, arguably, there was more failures. Um, 
Its first failure came in uh, 1921 when Poland took over Vilnius or Vilna, which is the capital now of Lithuania, um, because it wasn't happy that it had been given to Lithuania under the Treaty of Versailles. Um, the League of Nations tried to stop them. Uh, it warned them, it morally condemned them. Um, so it told them they were wrong, but Poland did nothing about it. Um, and it kept its army there. And the League of Nations did absolutely nothing uh, to get Poland to take its army out. And when the borders were officially rejoining the 1223, uh, they just gave in and let Poland have that territory and it became part of Poland. Um, the League looked very, very weak indeed. Um, and it showed that if you were willing to stand up to the League um, and put your army on the line, then they probably weren't going to challenge you and they'd let you get away with what you wanted. Uh, the second major failure uh, was in Corfu um, in 1923, when uh, there was the murder uh, on the Greek-Albanian border of an Italian called Tallini, who was a general. Um, and Tallini's job was to monitor that border because it had been redrawn by the Treaty of Versailles um, and the League thought that there would be problems between the Greeks and the Albanians um, over that border. Uh, and they were quite right. Uh, there was lots of conflict between those two countries. Um, and that led to, uh, in 1923, Tallini actually being murdered by someone on the border uh, and his men as well. Now, no one knows exactly who did it, um, but Greece was heavily blamed for the attack. Uh, and so Italy um, demanded that Greece pay them 50 million lira, uh, which was the Italian currency at the time, and it's a lot, a lot of money, um, as compensation. And they also wanted uh, Greece to go to um, the Italian uh, embassy and make a formal apology, um, as well as agreeing that those responsible for the murder would be executed. Um, and Greece said we're willing to do some of these things, uh, but not all of these things, because there's no actual proof that we killed Tallini. Um, and actually, we think it was probably the Albanians who did it and who have blamed it on us. Now, Italy didn't like that answer very much. Um, and so when the Greeks refused, they invaded the Greek island of Corfu, uh, which was perhaps not the most um, rational or explainable thing to do in response to that. Um, and they refused to move off of Corfu until Greece met their demands and gave them the 50 million lira. Now, Mussolini, who by this time was leader of Italy, um, realised that he was in a powerful position here because he was a member of the League of Nations Council. Uh, so he said that he would leave the League of Nations if the Council tried to discuss this issue. Um, and as a member of the Council, he pretty much had that power. Uh, so instead, he ensured that the decision was transferred to uh, a different organisation called the Council of Ambassadors, um, which was again made up of Britain, Italy, France and Japan. So uh, not very different to the Council of the League of Nations. Um, but uh, these countries were all ones that wanted to keep on good terms with Italy. And so they made Greece pay the 50 million lira to Italy. Uh, and this was a real weak point for the League and I think started to show why it would fail in later years. Uh, because Italy had shown that if you're a big country, uh, the League was more likely to listen to you. Uh, if you're a member of the Council, 
Um, the league didn't want to lose you, and so you could essentially blackmail them. Uh, and it showed to Mussolini just how much Britain and France wanted his assistance and wanted to stay on side with him. Uh, and poor old Greece got kind of royally stuffed here. It wasn't good for them at all. Um, other failures that the League had. Um, some would argue that disarmament was uh, a failure because it didn't happen. Uh, it had a promising start um, in 1921 with the Washington Naval Agreement, uh, but nothing was really done and all countries actually continued to build up their armaments, uh, so that really was a failure. Um, it's next, I would say, I would class it as a failure, other people might not, uh, but bear with me. In Bulgaria in 1925, there was a very similar incident to the invasion of Corfu, um, because two Greek soldiers were killed on the border between Greece and uh, Bulgaria. Greece uh, wanted compensation, just as Italy had done, um, and in order to try and persuade the Bulgarians to do this, they invaded uh, the town of Petrich in Bulgaria, um, just as Italy had invaded Corfu. Now, the League was successful in that it stopped, um, it, it stopped them doing that, um, and it, it caused a ceasefire, so there was no actual war between Greece and Bulgaria. Um, but what it did was it forced Greece to pay compensation to Bulgaria for its invasion um, and to uh, apologise and withdraw their troops, which you can probably see was very different to how they treated Italy uh, in terms of the Corfu crisis. So again, the League was criticised for hypocrisy, for the fact that it dealt very differently with bigger countries than it did smaller countries. Um, uh, and again, this was, I guess, a major moment in, in Mussolini's mind um, in terms of knowing that the League would do things that he wanted, but it wouldn't always do things that other countries wanted. Um, and the lessons of Corfu and Bulgaria, I guess, are really important as you go on to look next time at Abyssinia uh, and Manchuria, because these were the moments when the League showed weakness uh, and it showed inconsistency. And that taught people like Mussolini um, that the League could be exploited, it could be taken advantage of, um, and countries could get what they wanted. Okay, um, that's it for now. That's been a very, very long podcast. Hopefully you've split it up and listened to it in two. Um, right, have a good evening, and I will see you soon. The History Robcast.